How was your weekend? Everybody doing all right? Yeah, good. It's glad to hear it. So it was my birthday yesterday, and um, thank you, thank you. My daughter made me an acrostic with the uh, word father in it, and uh, I think there was fantastic was in there, and awesome, I think, was also one of the words. All true, of course, and I... <laughs> Nonetheless, it's good to hear it. You know, you like to hear it in any case, so. No, anyway, well, good. It's good to see you all this morning, and uh, enough about my birthday, and we're going to dig into God's Word. We've been in our sermon series now called Created a Need. It's our fourth week in the series, but we're in our third need. The need of the week, as Pastor Josh mentioned, is purpose, created to need purpose. We've looked at our need for dignity our need for love, and now our need for purpose. And purpose is something that I think is, uh, as, cre- as far as creatures go, purpose is something that is probably distinct, distinctly a human need. We are a forward-looking creature. It's a unique feature of the human being that not only can we remember far into our past, but we can think and project ourselves far into the future. And so we don't live from moment to moment to moment to moment. We live from moment to year to decade or more. We think about what it is that we need in the future. We orient our lives then accordingly. And all of us are driven by some purpose, whether it's uh, ill-defined and not particularly well thought through, or whether we're very clear about what it is that we're striving for. Our lives are not aimless, they're driven towards some purpose. Or, we could say, when our lives become aimless, we begin to sense that something is not right. We can't handle just aimlessness. Thinking about a story, a memoir I read of a man who was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. He was in his early 50s when it began, and Before he uh, went uh, fully into the sickness, he began to write out his thoughts. And the first moment that he realized that something wasn't right was when he came to himself in the middle of driving. And he realized that he didn't know where he was and he didn't know where he was going. And you can imagine that as a moment, kind of coming to yourself as though out of a dream in the middle of driving, not knowing where you are or where you're going. You think about, you can guess maybe, what's the first thing that he did in that moment? He stopped. And he pulled over to the side of the road. Because if you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going, we take our foot off the accelerator of life, so to speak. We pull over to the side of the road. We've got to figure it out. Because we're not creatures that can just wander aimlessly. We need to know what our lives are about and to have a purpose. Some of you, perhaps, this morning are like this man. You were stopped and pulled over on the side of the road. You don't know what your purpose in life is. Perhaps you lay awake at night wondering what it's all for, what it is that you should be about, what your efforts are counting towards. One of, our, uh, one of the primary aims of the very first chapter of the Bible is to clarify for us the nature of human 
purpose? What is the nature of humanity? What is the purpose of humanity? Or more pressing, we could say, what is the purpose of you and I? Collectively, we could say as a congregation, what is our purpose as a church? We're going to be uh, dividing the sermon into two basic parts, as we've done with some of the other sermons. We're going to first look at the Bible's account of human purpose, what we're created to be, what we're created to do, the purpose that God has bestowed upon humanity, uh, and then how we've lost our way from this purpose. And that's going to center us in Genesis 1 and 2 and then parts of Genesis chapter 3. And then we're going to look back to the passage that we've read earlier uh, in the service, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' famous words from the Sermon on the Mount, to look at how God restores our purpose to us in Christ. So our texts from Genesis to begin will be Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then Genesis 2, 5 through 9. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28, very first page of the Bible. I don't know if you make your way there and then stand together. Let's read uh, these texts together as we begin our sermon this morning. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then we'll flip the page over and go to Genesis 2, 5 through 9. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we turn the page to Genesis 2, 5 through 9. Now when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's word. May be seated. So we've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 throughout the sermon series, and we keep coming back to these texts and re-looking at them and, and asking different questions of the text. And the question that we're asking of the text this morning is, what is humanity's purpose? And as it relates to our theme of purpose, maybe you've already saw it there when we were reading it, but the first thing that jumps out at us, I think, as we think about this question of purpose, is the divine mandate placed upon Adam and Eve at their creation to have dominion over all the other living creatures, birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, to have dominion over all the living creatures, to fill the earth, to go out into the earth and subdue it to go out into the world and subdue the world. The terms have dominion and subdue, these are used uh, frequently throughout the Old Testament. And when we take a look, particularly at this, this word subdue, 
where it's used, this Hebrew term is used throughout the Old Testament uh, rather frequently. And most of the times that we see this word subdue, it's used in reference to military conquest. So to go into the land, one, one army would go and invade the land of another and they would subdue the land. They would bring the land under control or to subdue the land before uh, the Lord, to subdue the land before one's enemies. So it's an idea of bringing order and peace to uh, the land. So here we have Adam and Eve told to go out into the world to have dominion over all that God has made and to subdue the earth, to bring order, to bring the world under control. I think sometimes we can have uh, a picture in our minds of perfection. Uh, we, I think we most often conceive of perfection as static, right? We think about what does it mean to be perfect? If we're, if we're trying to achieve perfection, we're moving towards a goal, and then once you've gotten to perfection, then you stop, because there's nothing more to do once you get to perfection. And I think sometimes we can conceive of the world in that way, that God has made the world perfect, and there really isn't anything to do but just sit around and enjoy it. Because once you've achieved perfection, then what role really does humanity have in the world except just to enjoy the world that God has made? But that's not the picture that Genesis gives us about the world that God has made. Genesis tells us very clearly throughout chapter 1, as we've seen uh, in other weeks, that the world that God has made is good. Indeed, it is very good. But it's not perfect in the sense that it is complete. Genesis gives us a picture of a world teeming with life. It is a life, it's a world that is fertile with all sorts of living beings, but it's also a world that needs order. It's a world that needs subduing. Be like if you left school children alone in a room for two hours. There's a lot of goodness in that room, but they need subduing. Or perhaps if you left them alone for two minutes, probably you would have the same result. But a sort of beautiful chaos that is present in the world. This is the picture we get of Genesis. The world was created good, but not perfect in the sense that it was complete. The world was created with a job for humanity to do. So humanity was not just created in the world to just receive the bounty of the world, but humanity was created in the world to bring order and to bring control to the world that God had made, more than just self-indulgence. Humanity is to spread out over the earth, bringing order and peace to the world. And the command, of course, to be fruitful, I think, and multiply is tied into this larger command of bringing dominion and subduing the earth, because the task that is set before Adam and Eve extends beyond their capacity to fill it alone. And so they will need to be fruitful and multiply and spread throughout the earth to bring harmony, peace, and beauty to the world, this good world that God had made. And this task, <clears throat> this task that we see that has been given to Adam and Eve fits with what might not be so apparent to us as English 21st century readers of the text, but it's helpful to note that if you were reading this text from an ancient Near Eastern mindset, you would maybe be reading it and seeing some different things that, that, that we see. And it would be helpful to explain a little bit of these. When, when Genesis is making humanity, when Genesis is telling us that God made humanity in his image, placed him in a garden, and has given him dominion, we are being invited, the reader is being invited, to see Adam and Eve as king and queen 
of the world. In the ancient Near East, the idea of the image of God would have been used to speak to the king. So this idea of being made in the image of a God would not, was not unique to Genesis. What's unique to Genesis is that the image of God extends to all of humanity. That's unique to the Bible. But the idea that the one made in the image of God is the king, that would have, been, would have been understood by ancient readers of the Bible. That Adam is the one made in the image of God, then we're being told, and it makes sense that he has dominion because the image of the God is the king. The fact that Adam and Eve are placed in a garden is also likewise a statement about the royal calling to which Adam and Eve have been called. In the ancient world, gardens were associated with palaces. The kings would create vast estates and gardens with exotic animals. You might remember when Solomon uh, was king, and that was at the greatness of Israel's empire, that they brought into the kingdom apes and baboons and exotic animals to, to spread throughout the gardens around the palace. And so for Adam and Eve to be made in the image of God, to live in a divinely given garden, and then even this language that we see of Adam being made from the dust that throughout the Hebrew Bible, the way that kings were made frequently would be described as being made from the dust. God would say through a prophet, I've raised you from the dust to be king over your people. So we, we see here in Genesis that, that God has made Adam and Eve as, a, as royal vice regents of the world, putting them in a garden, a, a celestial palace or a, a, a terrestrial palace as it were from which they are to go out into the world exercising their kingship in a benevolent way, extending blessing to the world, bringing order out of chaos. And here's something that's super key that we see in Genesis chapter 2. This is why I had us read this passage 5 through 9. That God in providing this royal calling, this royal purpose, he also provides the means by which this purpose is to be achieved. Augustine, who is one of my favorite church fathers, in one of his prayers, he prays this. He says, he says to, to God, give what you command and then command what you will. In other words, what he's saying is, you can command me to do anything you want as long as you give me the capacity to fulfill the command that you're giving to me. Give what you command and then command what you will. That's what God does for Adam and Eve here in Genesis 1 and 2. He gives them a command to go out into the world and to be a blessing, to bring order, to bring, to bring control. But he doesn't just give them a command. He gives them the provision by which this command can be fulfilled. And that's what we see in Genesis 2 with the garden. God gives them a garden in the midst of the land of Eden, and in this garden are all the sorts of resources that Adam and Eve will need to carry out the provision, or to carry out the mission that they have been called to. Most pointedly, the tree of life. They have an unending supply of life to go out into the world as a people, to be a blessing to the world, bringing order and chaos, order out of, the, out of the, uh, the chaos that is there. So here's our picture thus far. God creates a world in some measure of raw form, incomplete, and he appoints Adam and Eve as the world's king and queen with the mandate to move out into the world, bringing order and blessing, serving as God's vice regents in caring for the world. And in order for this mission to be a success, God establishes a home base, this garden in Eden, where he supplies all that Adam and Eve need 
to accomplish this mission. So insofar as the story of Adam and Eve is not just a story of human beginnings, but is paradigmatic of kind of of every man, as, it's, as it were, every man and woman, our own story, we can see that human beings were created with a purpose. From our very beginnings, we were created with a purpose, not just to receive blessings, but to be a blessing in the world, to bless the world with the blessing that God has blessed us. God gives us a blessing And then through that blessing, we go out and we bless the world. And this is good news because what it means about our purpose is that our purpose isn't tied to any particular job, right? That I have to have a certain job. That's my purpose. Or I, or I have to get married or I have to have kids. That's my purpose. Or, or my socioeconomic status or my ethnicity or how, much, how big my bank account is. That none of these are related to our purpose, These can be means by which our purpose is carried out. But fundamentally, our purpose is to extend the blessing of God out into the world. And that means that it doesn't matter what kind of life we are living or what kind of uh, a frame we have, but that we can then be the blessing of God out into the world. Everyone can orient their lives around this purpose of extending the blessing of God into the world. God could have created a finished world. He could have created a turnkey world where we just, human beings just show up with our bags, we move in, unpack our boxes, and we go out and sit by the pool, and we sip whatever it is that you sip by your pool in your fantasy world. I don't know what that would be. And that sounds, in some ways that sounds great, right? That, that, in some ways that sounds great for a vacation, right? That's how we want our vacation to look. But if we're really honest with ourselves, That is not how we want our lives to look. Right? We don't want to spend our entire lives in self-indulgence. The times that we do spend too much time in self-indulgence, it doesn't feel good, right? It's like too many donuts, right? Like you're eating them and you're like, why am I doing this? Because I know it's not making me happy, but I'm doing it anyway, right? We, we know intuitively that we were made to be a blessing, to extend our lives out into the betterment of the world that God has made and to bless others. And God created a world built for that very reason, built for that very purpose, that we could be a blessing. We could work with God in bringing blessing to the world. What greater purpose or meaning in life can there be than to bless the world with the very blessing of God? It's a great gift that he has given to us. And as we've seen throughout all of these needs up to this point, and we'll continue to see that every need that we have, that God fulfills, he fulfills as a gift. Human beings didn't show up in the world and have to find their own purpose. They didn't have to create their own purpose. They were handed a purpose by God. We were handed a purpose by God. He has given us the privilege of extending his blessing out into the world. But then we get to the part of the sermon, as we've seen in so many of these other sermons, where everything goes south, right? It's all good in Genesis 1 and 2, and if we could have just stopped there, how happy we would all be. But alas, the Bible continues to Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3, things take the proverbial bad turn. Adam and Eve are not content with the blessing, the provision that God has given them through the garden and the tree of life. 
God has given them a purpose. He's given them a mandate. He's given them provision for the mandate that he's given them, but they're not content with the provision and the blessing that he's given to them. They don't want just the tree of life. They also want the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God has forbid them to take hold of. They turn away from God's clear command. They lose faith in his wisdom and insight, and they reach for the forbidden fruit. And Genesis 3 can be read, I think, in some ways as a quest it's a human quest for independence. All right? We, we want to we go our own way. And in one sense, humanity was successful. Adam and Eve were successful in that. They went their own way. But in achieving independence from God, they've also achieved independence from the provision that he supplied. And so now they have compromised their ability to live into the purpose for which they were made. The provision that God supplied for them by which they could go out into the world and be a blessing, they've now cut themselves off from that provision. Genesis 3, we read that there are some curses that are levied by God in response to Adam and Eve's sin. And it's notable that the curses that fall upon humanity match the two mandates of Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. Look in Genesis 3, just look over in your, in your Bibles to 3, 16. Uh, we can read through 19, or 15 rather, 16 rather. Uh, Genesis 3.16, both uh, the man and the woman are culpable. Adam and Eve are culpable in what happens, and so they both receive punishments. And we read in 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in, your, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And then the Lord, seeing that man has now fallen into a, a place of evil in his heart, recognizes that for humanity to continue to have access to the tree of life would just perpetuate the brokenness now of humanity. So humanity is kicked out of the garden, removed east, the scripture tells us, of Eden. And in verse 24 of chapter 3, he drove out, of the, out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So humanity now has been cut off from the provision that God has supplied and the, the mandates that God had given to humanity to be fruitful and multiply and go out into the world and subdue it have been compromised. Now there will be great pain and childbearing and the land that Adam was to come and bless with his husbandry will now swallow him up. God had raised Adam up out of the dust to be a blessing to the land. But Adam, in his alienation from God, will now return to the land from which he came. He will no longer be able to bless the land because he has been cut off from the provision of God. I think this is illustrated in some way uh, well from Joshua chapter 8. I don't know if you've read Joshua's, the book of Joshua in the Bible, but in the book of Joshua, it recounts many of the wars that take place amongst God's people. And at one point, the Israelites are at war with the town called Ai. And they devise a strategy for attacking Ai. And, 
And what they do is they come out to fight against Ai, and the men of the city come out from behind the walls of their city, which is their home base, their protection. It's for them, we might say, kind of their Eden home base. They come out in the open field. They fight against the men of Israel, and the men of Israel feign defeat, and they flee back into the hills, and the men of Ai chase them out into the hills. Well, meanwhile, there was another regiment of Israeli soldiers that then come down from behind and they attack the city while it's undefended and they set fire to it. And in the book of Joshua we read how the men of Ai now turn and look over their shoulder and they see the fire going up, the smoke going up from their town. And they panic and each of them turns to their own way to save themselves. Because they had provision for the task in their town, the safety of their walled city. But as they went out on mission, when they lost the provision and the safety of their town, when they saw their provision go up in smoke, it turned them no longer to pursuing the good of the town, but now they returned to trying to save themselves in every which way. And I think that's what we read in Genesis 3 and illustrated perhaps in Joshua 8 is the universal tragedy represented to us in the story of Adam and Eve. And it lives on with us today because here's the tragedy of it, that bereft of God's blessing, we no longer focus on blessing others, but instead set our hearts on blessing ourselves. If we were to look at the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 5, on through the remainder of the Bible and all the way into the present day, what we see is that Adam and Eve and all of humanity that comes after no longer conceive of their primary purpose in the world to go out into the world to be a blessing, but bereft of God's blessing. They move out into the world to try to take from the world a blessing. And this is the tragedy, that, that we no longer focus on blessing our world, but we instead set our hearts on blessing ourselves. And our whole purpose in life becomes oriented towards meeting our own needs toward achieving our own sense of security and independence. We turn each of us to our own ways to try to figure out how to bless ourselves, and we forget about our purpose to be a blessing to the world. This is so ingrained in our collective cultural psyche. You think about how we do education even, but we send kids to kindergarten to send them to grade school, to get them to middle school, to get them to high school, to get them to college, to get them a job so they can take care of themselves. And there's nothing wrong with taking care of oneself, but if you really think about it, we have oriented our entire existence for providing for our own needs. How very different this was from the world that God intended when God would provide for our needs and we would focus on being a blessing. But we don't think about being a blessing. I mean, we, when we think about our education system, we don't send our kids through that education system primarily with the thought about how they can be a blessing to the world. It just isn't how our world works. And that's not even an indictment against American society. That is just human society across the board. We come into the world innately sensing that we have been alienated from the blessing of God. And we begin to spend our lives, our sole purpose in life is to reclaim blessings, trying to, to wring, as it were, from the world the blessings that we have lost from God. And our purpose no longer becomes to be a conduit of God's blessing, but rather to try to achieve blessing on our own apart from God. 
Things like, where will I live? What will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? These are what consume our thoughts. And if we have something left over, we might consider it being a blessing to others. But it's me first. Me first and my needs. And this isn't the world that God intended for us or the purpose that he intended for us. Of course, I think there's two problems with life lived outside or east of Eden. I've already mentioned we cut ourselves off from the blessing of God and our efforts to self-bless through the world ultimately are going to be inadequate. We're creatures of need trying to wring a blessing out of a needy world. God didn't give us the world as a blessing as much as he gave us the world as an occasion for us to bless. And when we move into the world trying to take from the world rather than give to the world, then we find that ultimately we're not sufficiently blessed. We were never meant to supply our own needs. I think that's the lesson of the tree of life. God, God supplies our need. The life by which we live that we can move out into the world and be a blessing is the life of God. And if we try to find that life in any way else, it ultimately will fail us. Even life at its best, Genesis 3 reminds us, is already marked by the futility that comes with death. One of my favorite poets is Gerard Manley Hopkins, and he, uh, I say that like I have lots of favorite poets, but who are we, <laughs> who are we kidding? I know like three, so he's one of my three. I'm hoping to expand, but this is where we are right now. So in any case, uh, but one of my, he is a great poet, and, um, and he wrote this poem called Spring and death, and I think it captures some of the futility of life that we all need to be reminded of sometimes. He writes this, I had a dream, a wondrous thing. It seemed an evening in the spring, a little sickness in the air from too much fragrance everywhere. As I walked a stilly wood, sudden death before me stood. In a hollow lush and damp, he seemed a dismal murky stamp. Death, said I. What do you hear at this spring season of the year? I marked the flowers ere the prime, which I may tell at autumn time. Ere I had further question made, death was banished from the glade. Then I saw that he had bound many trees and flowers round with a subtle web of black, and that such a sable track lay along the grasses green from the spot where he had been. And the flowers that he had tied, as I marked, not always died sooner than their mates, and yet their fall was fuller of regret. It seemed so hard and dismal thing, death, to mark them in the spring. Even in the best that the world can give, the springtime of any thing, the cry of a newborn baby, death has already marked it. There is a futility that comes with this life that most of us try to hide and not recognize, but if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that everything in life that we would look to to bless us is doomed to return to the dust along with us. There is no life that can bless but the life of God. And the Christian faith asks us to stare open-eyed at the futility of life east of Eden. 
Has your life become nothing more than an effort to bless yourself by futile means? There's no hope down that road. That purpose is a purpose that will be doomed to frustration. Perhaps even though more tragically than just not being able to supply our own needs is that we are no longer oriented towards love. Johnny's sermon last week, Pastor Johnny's sermon, talked about how we were created with the need to love and to be loved, and how ultimately this need is met in God. God pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and it is through the love of God that God has poured into us that we can extend love to others. What we're talking about here in Genesis 1 and 2 is really just another way of saying the same thing, that God has blessed us with his very life so we can pass this life on into the world. Blessed to be a blessing, loved to be loving. We are all, each of us, created to need love, but we have been born into a world where the natural inclination of every heart is to turn away from one another and inward toward ourselves. We're born with the need for love, but we're not born into a world of love. We're born into a world where everyone seeks their own good rather than the good of their fellow human being. And there's a lot of beauty still in this world that God has made, but what a rotten world it can be when everyone turns to their own way. When everyone looks in the mirror of their life, the rearview mirror of their life, and they see the smoke going up, and then we panic, and we begin to turn to our own way to secure our own blessing at whatever means possible. The Bible says that's what sin is. Sin is not some failure to live up to an arbitrary code that God has written from eternity past, a bunch of rules and regulations about how to be good and moral. Sin is fundamentally, at its core, a failure to love, a failure to be a blessing. And are we willing to acknowledge that when our purpose in life becomes pursuing our own blessing as the highest thing, however that's conceived, we all have different ways of pursuing our own blessings, that that runs contrary to love. And that in the end, there can be no joy in it. So where do we go from here, right? Where do we go from here? We're born into a world to be a blessing, but we don't have any provision for that. We're born into a world to extend love and to love, but we're not born into a world of love. Where do we go from here? This is where we turn to Matthew 6 and the words of Jesus. So I encourage you to turn there. We read it, of course, already, but um, Matthew 6 the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We won't reread everything that we've just read, but I want to focus on verses 31 through 33. So as you turn there, we were created to be a blessing in the world. Our alienation from God has hamstrung our best efforts. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers us a way back to a renewed relationship with God, a way to return to Eden, if you will. He offers us a way to return back to the Father who is the fount of all blessings, a way back to the tree of life, as it were. In Matthew 6, Jesus offers us two visions of how life can go. Look again here in 631 through 33. 
Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, meaning those who don't know God, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things all will be added to you. Jesus offers us two visions for how life can work for us. Either we can be like those who don't know God, who pursue as their life's purpose their own blessing. That's what the Gentiles are doing. They are pursuing their own blessing. What will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? They've abandoned the call to be a blessing to the world and now are pursuing their own blessing. Or we can be those who entrust ourselves to God, believing that He is taking care of our needs and secure in our knowledge of God's provision, be freed up to pursue the kingdom of God and Christ's call to be a blessing to the world. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he is in many ways asking us just to do the same thing that Adam and Eve were asked to do back in Genesis 1 and 2, to move out into the world as it stands and to be a conduit of the blessing of God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his beauty, and to extend that out into the world. We have needs. Jesus isn't trying to pretend that we don't have needs. We have needs. Right? But, but we don't have to be responsible at the end of the day for making our lives all about meeting our own needs. We give that over to God, Jesus says. Let him worry about your needs. He knows what you need. Make as your highest point and your highest purpose. Be freed up to be a blessing in the world, which is the same as saying that we are freed up to live our lives oriented towards love. So I want to close by saying a word to my Christian brothers and sisters here this morning asking two questions. First question would be, what are you trusting in to bless you? What are you trusting in to bless you? Not, what's the Sunday school answer? Because we all know the Sunday school answer, right? We know that the answer should be God or Jesus, right? But what are we really trusting in to bless us? This requires a little bit more reflection you can begin to know what you're trusting in when you think about when you begin to panic or get depressed or get conniving and manipulative or get angry when this thing is threatened. What's the thing that if it goes up in smoke leaves you feeling really insecure and doing all sorts of funky stuff that you don't feel right about? That's the thing that you're probably really trusting in. And it takes some time and some prayer and some reflection and maybe even talking with a trusted counselor or friend sometimes to really gain insight on this. Because right? even as Christians, we come to Christ, we recognize we're bereft of blessing, we turn to Christ to receive the blessing of God, to be freed up to be a blessing in the world, but over time we lose our way a bit. And we begin to look to other things to bless us. And we begin to trust in other things to be the real source of the blessing in our lives. And this is a screw that you tighten and it comes unscrewed. And you tighten and it comes unscrewed. And that's just how it is with all of life. That's why we come together every week as Christians. We remind ourselves that our blessing is found in God alone. So what are you trusting in to bless you? Maybe you need to tighten that screw this 
morning. You need to recalibrate yourself to the fact that God is the one who provides the blessing. And the second question, what are you living for? If you are trusting in something other than God to bless you, then you will not make your life about extending God's blessing. You can't give away what you're not in possession of. If you are looking to be blessed by your job, by your family, by your relationships, whatever it is that you think is the real ultimate source of blessing, it won't be sufficient to have bountiful, uh, to have enough bounty out of which you can then go out to bless the world. Right? If you're looking for something other than God to bless you, there will not be enough of it to allow you to be a blessing to the world. Ask the same two questions to my non-Christian friends this morning to invite you to reflect on these two questions. What are you trusting in to bless you? What do you think will give you the greatest blessing in life? Christianity says, the Bible tells us that it is God himself through Christ that is the blessing that we receive in ourselves through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very life of God, and that that life is the life that is the satisfying life that overcomes the grave, it overcomes our sin, it overcomes our fears, and extends on into eternity, is the eternal blessing of God extended to us in Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world that can compete with that blessing that is extended to us through Jesus Christ. Ask you the second question as well. What are you living for? What drives your life? What matters most to you? What, when you get to the end of your life, will you look back on and say, it's all, it all counted for something? I don't know of anything that matters beyond eternity other than the mission of God and his call that we should love one another, that we should receive love from God and extend that love into the world. All the shallow things that our world and our culture teaches us to pursue as blessings in the end cannot provide true satisfaction. What are we about as a congregation? Right? What should we be about as a church? God has called us here to bless us, to receive from him the provision of his son. And in receiving this as a community, to celebrate this blessing, to revel in this blessing, and then to turn and extend this blessing to those that are in desperate need of receiving the blessing of God. My prayer for us as a congregation, my prayer for you as an individual, my prayer for myself, is that we would always bear in mind that the blessing that we need, the thing that will truly bring satisfaction, the thing that brings the most joy in life is to receive from God his gift of grace and love and then to make it our purpose in life to extend this grace and love into the world so that the world can know the love and the hope of God. Amen? Father, thank you that you loved us. You didn't just create a world where we could sit idly by, making no contribution, but just being your favorite pets in the world that you had made. But you have given us dignity and love and purpose.
And you have raised us up from the dust and given us your spirit and you have sent us out into the world to be a blessing, to extend your love. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we lose sight of that. We try to find blessing elsewhere in the things that you have made rather than in you yourself. Forgive us for that. Bring us back to our senses, Lord. And I pray that in laying hold of your blessing, true blessing in our lives, that we would then reorient our lives and our purpose to being a blessing in the world. God, there's no greater joy than to be used by you to bring your love and your truth and your grace to a world that's desperately in need of it. So help us to live that way as individuals in all of our varied contexts and jobs and neighborhoods. Help us to live that way as a church, Lord. We want to be used by you. We want to We want to matter in your kingdom, Lord. So help us to live fully into the purpose that you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.